The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel can be found at our website, myemmanuel.net. Thank you, Pastor Eddie. Thank you, band. Well, it's just great to worship with you this morning. So wonderful to see Sydney follow the Lord in the obedience of baptism. And the blessing that is to all of us is it reminds us of our salvation and who we have in Christ. Today's a special day for us here at Emmanuel. I want to give a little introduction here, and it's going to be one of those that I go way back. 18 years ago, uh, Emmanuel was at a place where we had, uh, I had one other pastor serving with me and we needed to add a third pastor and we were looking for the right guy. I'm alumni of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. My son was playing baseball there, attending there. So I thought I'd go out, see him play baseball. I would interview some guys that might be a right match for us. And so I'm in Virginia when I get word that there's a guy that might be the right guy for us. The thing is he's in Oregon. So while I'm watching a baseball game in Lynchburg, Virginia, I do, a, I do a phone interview with Jim Tabor. I discover he's not really from Oregon. That's where he went to Bible school, but he's from Laurel. He's a hometown guy. He came to faith in his high school years here. And God brings him to us. I knew the moment that I uh, just uh, got off the phone, I knew that he was God's guy for us. And God brought Jim and Brandy to Emmanuel 18 years ago, Brandy's here with Jim. She's in the front row. She's waving at you right there. The boys are in the children's program right now. So we served together side by side, shoulder to shoulder for 14 years. I'm reminded of the story of David and Jonathan. Their hearts were knit together, and so were ours. But four years ago, Jim and I went to lunch, and he said, God's calling me to start a church. And uh, many of you who are here for a part of that time know that that's now the Grace Point Church in the Heights. And we're so excited about what God has done and how he's just multiplied our ministry through them. But it's been four years and I haven't asked Jim back. You know, when you get a young church starter, he can't just leave his church all the time. He's got to be there. He's got to be present. But the time has come. And so today's a little bit of a homecoming for us. Would you welcome Jim and Brandy Tabor? Pastor, Pastor Jim. Appreciate you, my man. Well, yeah, good morning, church. Good morning, this guy on there. It is good morning, you guys. It's good to see you again. It has been four years. I can't believe it. Um, there's times when I still share about our church and I go, well, here at, a, uh, at Grace Point, you know, 14 years, you kind of get into a habit, right? You get into a habit. And yeah, God called us away to plant uh, four and a half years ago. And it was difficult. Those of you that were here might remember there was a few tears shed by uh, Brandy, not me. Um, no, by me for sure. Uh, we love you. We love Emmanuel. And <clears throat> we're just thankful that we get to partner together. Um, and yeah, we planted a church called Grace Point. We are a portable church, which means we back up a 24-foot trailer to a junior high cafeteria, concrete floor. We've done it 250 times. 
where we unload it when it's 20 below or 103 at like 6.30 or 7 in the morning, and then we leave at 1.30 when it's all packaged away, and we go on about our week, and then we do it again every six days for four and a half years. It's been wild, but let me tell you, God has done really, really great things. I mean, listen, we felt like it was hyper-strategic to go ahead and plant a church before a global pandemic. Um, soup, that was a joke, church. Look, if you don't laugh at my jokes, it's just not going to go well for you. I'm just kidding. Uh, no. Hey, listen, it, it has been t- uh, tough. It, all, all things considered, we should have been wiped off the map. We, there should have been no reason why we could have been able to get through that. I mean, we were in a school which stopped meeting, but by God's grace, we're still around. And this year alone, we've baptized 20. God's doing really, really great things. We've seen people come to Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. We've seen people come to Christ in coffee shops. We've seen people come to Christ at barbecues, at church. I mean, all kinds of things. We're seeing people coming out of areas of addiction and growing in recovery. We're having people brand spanking new that couldn't find the gospel of John that are in discipleship. God's doing awesome things. And so thanks for praying for us. Please keep praying for us. I mentioned that portable situation before. It's tough. It's fatiguing. So when you come in and you find your nice, comfortable seat... Remember us, okay? Remember us in folding chairs and doing everything. No, it's good. But thanks for your prayers. We couldn't have done this without your prayers and support. You are sending church, and that's a pretty great thing. So I am thrilled to be here today. So if you're ready to dive into the Word, I want to hear you say, I'm ready. Good. Turn to Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> Acts chapter 19. I want to share with you a narrative of Scripture in Acts 19 that I believe mirrors our culture today in some scary ways, quite honestly. Really, really close. So if you're in Acts chapter 19, let me get you caught up. The Apostle Paul is in the city of Ephesus. The church has been founded there. It's now growing in Ephesus. We've got a story of the seven sons of Siva. Anybody familiar with that story in the room, a few of you? No? Or do you just don't want to raise your hand when people ask you questions? Okay, seven sons of Siva. Well, uh, seven sons of Siva were these seven itinerant Jewish preachers who heard that the disciples were praying in Jesus' name and demons would go running. And they thought, ooh, we should try that. And so they tried to adjure a demon, and we lost it. Okay, tried to adjure a demon in Jesus' name, and I love the response of the demon. says, Jesus we know, Paul we recognize, but who are you? I don't know who you are. And the scripture says that they left naked and wounded, and it was a big old kind of disruption in the city. But God did some remarkable things. He brought about repentance in the church. The name of Jesus was extolled, and the word of God increased and grew mightily. So now we see after that, some more drama happens in the city of Ephesus. Pick it up in verse 21. He says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must go see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I always appreciate in the Bible when it gives us a historical account of the reality of the situation, as opposed to not just all spiritual language, but really telling us what happened in the narrative, right? And so this is where we find ourselves, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbances, Luke's way of saying, it was about to go down. What we used to say as a kid, it was about to be a brouhaha. Anybody use the word brouhaha anymore? No, exactly, no, there's a terrible phrase. But it was about to be a brouhaha. 
And it says, because there was a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the worksmen in trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So he really gives away why he's complaining about Paul. Because he says, listen, we make it our job to build these, these homages, these statues, these, these pillars to the Greek god Artemis. Because in Ephesus, the Greek god Artemis had her temple there and everybody knew it was a huge religion and, and she's this real powerful god in Greek mythology and had a real hot temper. So he didn't want to upset Artemis. So he gathers the guys together and he says, hey, listen, we're all building statues uh, about, uh, around Artemis so people can like, do these idol worship and we're all making a lot of money. That's how we've got our wealth. It's our business. And then he gives us the real issue in verse 26. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, can you hear this vitriol? This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Are you ready for this? This is when the Bible gets funny. Turning people away, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Can you believe he had the audacity to say that our little silver statues are not gods? That's insanity, isn't it? They were so upset that they were beginning to have an effect in their pocketbook because Paul was preaching a gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so naturally that means that if you're surrendering to the risen Jesus, a little statue of a Greek god that no one's ever seen or heard, it's just a myth, that's going to go to the wayside, isn't it? And they're upset. They're, they're losing money. They're upset. Can you believe that the Apostle Paul, or rather that Paul is teaching these things? He continues on. And he says, now there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. Now he's got to cover his religious base. Are you ready? But also, oh, the temple of the great Artemis may be counted as nothing. We can't have that happening that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom the, uh, all Asia and the world worship. So he's saying, listen, guys, we got to do something about this. Paul, Paul's been preaching, and more people are following him. And guess what? No one's coming to the storefront anymore. And, and man, it, it hurts our pocketbooks. Yeah, but oh, we need to make sure that, that, that Artemis doesn't lose her magnificence. Really trying to appeal to all sides, the pocketbook side and the religious side. So how does the city respond to their gathering? In verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. Have we seen a city filled with confusion the last few years? Once or twice? You better believe we have. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were, uh, who were Paul's companions in travel. Now, man, can you imagine being Gaius and Aristarchus? I'm just traveling with this guy, Paul. We don't know their roles. They might have been luggage guys. They might have been logistic guys, like lining up the food and the lodging. And all of a sudden, it's going down in Ephesus. Paul seems to be in a meeting somewhere else. And they drag these two guys to the front. And I get this picture of Gaius and Aristarchus going, no idea what to do right now. No idea why we're the guys. They just saw the first immediate person and they chose to drag them to the front. They don't know what they're doing. 
And in verse 30, it says, when Paul wished to go in uh, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. It's like Paul saying, hey, I'm not going to let my guys get under, under the fire. I gotta, they're, they're really upset at me. I can't just let them continue down this path. They wouldn't let him go. And even some of the Asiarchs, which are uh, Asian authorities, high officials uh, in Asia, <clears throat> who were friends of his, that is friends of Paul, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. It's like they're saying, Paul, listen, man, you hear that, right? They're upset. The people are upset. The city's in confusion. They're getting louder and louder. They're dragging your people up and they're trying to question them. If you go into the middle of this situation, it is going to be a real devastating outcome. Don't go. And it's as if you can kind of picture Paul like, you know, some, like holding back his coat and he's like, but I got to get to my guy. I got to make a defense for why we're on trial here. But they wouldn't let him go. But look at verse 32. Here it is a second time. Now, some cried out one thing, while some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Wow. The city's entering this riot, and again, it's getting louder, and it's getting crazier, and they're starting to drag this guy and that guy to the front, and they're shouting about Artemis. It's almost as if the city heard it, and they show up, and they go, yeah, yeah. Hey, bro, what are we yelling for again? I'm not really, oh, these people feel like they know, they're pretty passionate. Oh, well, let's go over to the, they seem pretty excited about what they're yelling about. They don't even know what they're yelling about. By the way, isn't it just human nature to want to get caught up in the drama? You don't think so? The answer is yes. You like drama and so do I, let's be honest. People are drawn to drama. So the city is drawn to the drama of the moment and they don't even know why they're caught up in the mob confusion. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But listen to how they responded. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Whenever somebody wants to give a different perspective, they need to be silenced. He just wanted to speak. He was just going to try to give another side of the story. And he said, what did they do? They decided, here's an idea. Let's not listen to him. Let's just scream over top of him so they can't talk. And after two hours of it, maybe he'll cower in fear and leave. Do we not see this today? Yes, we do. It's a tactic that we see that started 2,000 years ago. When someone doesn't like what we have to say, they just shout over top of you until you're too afraid. And then you just stop talking. This is where it comes from. There's a level of animus that's happening in this city towards the message of the gospel of Jesus. And the whole city is caught up in it. Verse 35, we finally have a voice of reason. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? He's saying, listen, everybody knows this is Artemis territory. I mean, read the billboards, guys. It's right there. Everybody knows this is Artemis territory. That's not at debate. <clears throat> this is what's happening. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Finally, a person that's a voice of wisdom. Verse 37 says, For you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. That's important. Because most often what we see in the Apostle Paul's preaching is not talking down the other religions as much as he talks up the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He didn't spend all of his time saying, your belief system is wrong and this God person is wrong and this is wrong. He really says, let me show you what is right. There is a Jesus Christ who has died and who has risen from the grave. We see this incredible narrative in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he says he died according to the scriptures, he was buried, he rose according to the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to 500, a bunch of people are still alive. He proclaimed the risen Savior Jesus Christ. That's what he stayed on message about most of the time. And so even the town clerk is recognizing he didn't actually say anything against Artemis. He's just simply saying that Jesus is the only way. That's a significant difference, isn't it? So he says to them, if Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, they're proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we're really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Ephesus was a mess. Ephesus was in trouble. What do we learn from this today? How do we take this narrative and sort of, sort of grab a hold of our faith and walk in that? It's real simple. Here's what we understand. The gospel disrupts. The gospel disrupts. The gospel has always disrupted. I want to suggest that to you this morning. The gospel has always been a dividing line. Not everybody's going to receive the gospel message. And the gospel is a disruptive message because it causes us to reject so many things of the flesh, so many things that we live in and love and pursue as humankind to pursue a holy life in Christ Jesus. And it's not a popular message. Keep your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 10, would you? Look at what Jesus says about this concept. Because Jesus speaks to it. I don't know about you, but I tend to think if, if Jesus is going to speak to any issue, I'm going to make him the authority on it, right? So he says in Matthew chapter 10, pick it up in verse 34, this concept of gospel disruption, Jesus says it this way. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. You might be going, wait a minute, I thought that, that at Christmas we sing peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? Yes, the gospel personally gives us peace with God. He's, he atones for our sin. He's a propitiation for sin. He covers and forgives our sin and throws it as far as east is from the west. So we individually have peace with God. But he says, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. A sword divides. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law And a person's enemies will be those of their own household. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now we could take two more weeks and we could unpack all of these things here. But what I want you to know in this passage is that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. He's not saying, hey, I've got a great idea. When I come, I'm going to delight to separate your family. That's not what he's saying. We know that from so much other scripture. God wants us to have close families and tight relationships and all that kind of stuff. What Jesus is doing is he's preparing his followers to say, listen, when you choose to turn away in repentance of your old life, in your old belief system, and you turn all to Christ and you follow him, not everybody's going to go with you where you go. 
Not everybody's going to follow the direction you're on. Not, not everybody's going to be on your trajectory. Not everybody's going to believe what you believe. Not everyone's going to value what you value. And what he's saying is, is what's going to happen is you're going to find it in your own home. There's going to be people that are in the closest relationship to you that are going to separate. They're not going to want to go there. They're going to hold some contempt for you. They're going to, they're going to disinvite you, uninvite you to certain things. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have been in this story before where the message of the cross, salvation in Jesus, divided a close relationship that you once had. Jesus has said, it's going to happen. Because I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. He's saying, I came to disrupt. He came to disrupt. His message is a disruptive message. And that's something we have to pay attention to because as followers of Christ, we live counter to culture. I know how your pastor preaches. I know Paul very, very well. He is, he is a, he's one of the closest people in my entire life. And I know he teaches you this way, that, that we live counter to culture. We don't follow the mob mentality or the ideologies of the masses. We're called in Jesus to live differently, which should be an amen statement because we should love to live differently, right? If we believe that Jesus conquered sin and death, and you know what that also means? It means that his way of living is good. He says in 1 John 5, it's not burdensome to obey his commands. His ways are the best way. We follow Jesus' way. So people are going to hate that. We're going to have a variety of values that coincide with the gospel of Christ that are going get to get in the way of people. Maybe your faith reveals to them that they have no faith and that makes them feel bad. Maybe your faith is contrary to their lifestyle choices. Maybe your faith gives you joy that they don't have and they want that joy. Maybe your faith gives you a certainty that you have of your eternal home and they don't have that certainty of that eternal home. Maybe your faith questions or opposes their worldviews and nobody likes to be questioned or opposed by someone else. Maybe your faith causes them to lose money or success. You might say, well, how does, how does my faith cause somebody to have some financial impact? Well, as followers of Jesus, we live in our jobs differently, don't we? And you know at your job, for some of you might be able to say, if I, if I fudge a little here, if I twist a little there, if I upsell a little bit beyond what my customer actually needs, I can make more money for the company. But as a follower of Jesus, we say, no, no, I'm going to treat people the way Jesus would treat them if they were in this role. I'm going to have integrity and character above all things. Character and integrity. So you might say, hey, listen, because of my faith in Jesus Christ, that means that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor and value my family and my church family as high values for me, which means I'm not going to be married to the job 80 hours a week because I want to be in church. I want to be in my life group. I want to be in my family. I want to raise my children. I want to shepherd my wife and love her well. I'm not going to be married to the company, so they're not going to get as much time from you. Let's get to some real talk, some real big picture stuff. Human trafficking. The UN tells us there's 49.6 million people living in slavery modern day today. Let that number resonate. State Department tells us that 27.6 million people worldwide are trafficked at any given time. Highest number in recorded history. Highest number in recorded history. In fact, we know that from 2011 to 2020, did you know that we've prosecuted 84% more traffickers in the United States than we ever did? More and more people are facing this. And here's, here's what I want you to get. They tell us, the A21 organization tells us that the trafficking industry, I hate saying that word, generates $150 billion a year in revenue. Think about that for a minute. These are God's children created in his beautiful image, made in the image of God. And people are making billions of dollars on the backs of women and children and people. 
as a follower of Jesus, we say, no way that's going to happen. That's not going to happen. So as the church, big C church, we need to do something about that. Amen? Yeah, which means, guess what? Traffickers lose money. Praise God. They lose money. How about drugs and gang life? When we pull a kid off the streets or a gangbanger that, that comes to Christ, they don't make money for the gang anymore. How about when we nurture and love and shepherd a young, scared mama to have that baby? And maybe you have the courage to find an adoptive family instead of taking the life of that unborn child and getting more revenue to certain organizations. So don't tell me that our faith does not have a financial impact on the world. You better believe it does. And we need to decide, are we going to align with the gospel of Jesus in his values of human life and mankind? Because the way of the Jesus follower is different and there will be people that are significantly opposed and it's going to cause a disruption. So how do we respond to this? Like, what do we do? It's easy to kind of hear those and think about this and think, what do we do? Two things really simply. Here it is. Number one, as a follower of Jesus, we need to be prepared to disrupt. We need to be, a, uh, we need to be prepared to disrupt. We need to plan to stay faithful through it. We need to expect that others will find <clears throat> our gospel message and our way of life disruptive. Now, let me say this clearly. I might say it again, so you have to bear with me. I am not suggesting that we disrupt by our attitude, our aggression, or our arrogance. We've seen a lot of Christians that have done that the last few years, who in the, in the name of standing on what is true, they've done so, so abrasively that their delivery has ruined their witness. Notice the, the character of Jesus Christ. People were endeared to him. Scripture says early on that he grew in favor with God and man. Jesus was actually significantly not aggressive. And I could say some things this morning that are on my mind that might make us feel a little uncomfortable about turning the other cheek and those kind of things, but that's what Jesus says. He treated people with dignity, with value. He looked on the crowds in Mark, or Matthew 9 and said that he had compassion on them because they were helpless, harassed like sheep without a shepherd. So listen carefully. I am not suggesting that we go out and try to disrupt the world by our attitude and our aggression. No, no, no. I'm saying that as we stand on the gospel of Jesus with a smile, with compassion, with empathy, walking shoulder to shoulder with our neighbors who are far from God, in the world but not of the world, that gospel message might disrupt. And we need to be prepared that others might say, I'm not walking where you're walking, man. I don't want anything to do with where you're going. Christians need to be prepared. Interestingly, in Revelation chapter two, this, uh, this, this book that John wrote uh, 30 to 35 years after the book of Acts. And guess what? In verses two and three, it writes about the church in Ephesus, where Jesus talks about the church in Ephesus. So riot in Ephesus, disruption happens, seven sons of Siva, Paul in this huge riot and all the things that ensued. How'd the church do three and a half decades later? Here's what it says. It says that they were known, had the reputation for working hard, toil, not bearing with evil, testing those who call themselves spiritual leaders, patient endurance, and not growing weary. Now, some of you are going, hey, Jim, don't forget about the part where it says that they forsook their first love. Yes, they did. And they were called to repentance for that. But Jesus commended them. I would say it to you this way. He commended them for saying, hey, after that riot, you stayed faithful. You stayed faithful. You wouldn't tolerate evil. You didn't let the world tell you how to have values. You stayed faithful to the gospel. You stayed faithful to the gospel. I want to suggest to you today that that riot, that disruption is what prepared the church to stand firm. 
Oh, church, man, I, I, I just love our churches. I love Grace Point. I love you guys. Listen, now is not the time for Christians to have our knees knocking and to shrink back. Amen? Now is not that time. Now is not the time where we just need to go, let's just get a little quieter. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. And look, I get it. I kind of have a pocket theory. Are you ready for my pocket theory? I think because we're so close to Canada, we're like Diet Coke Canada. We're like, we're not quite Canadians, but we're really close. So we're, we're, like, we're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry about that, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, right? Okay, you didn't get the, 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 the accent? I'm leaning into the metaphor. But we do this as Montanans, guys. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to, set, I don't want to upset anybody. I'm really sorry. So we just got to keep the peace, which is really we're not peacemakers. Then we become peace fakers because there's not really peace. We just keep it buried really deep down. That's the Montana way. And so we don't say anything. We don't do anything that's going to disrupt or ruffle feathers because we just want to keep the peace. But listen, that's not the way of a Jesus follower. Sometimes we have to say what is true. And say it clearly, and say it lovingly, but say it boldly. We have opportunities that we need to be prepared for the disruption. Let me give you a quick example. I was on a plane about six weeks ago. It's a funny story. I hadn't planned on telling it, and I told it last service. I got to tell you. It's a funny story. So we're flying back, and Brandy, of course, is sitting in front of me instead of beside me, which I'm still very angry with her about. It's the airline's fault, but I'm blaming her. It's fine. Um, So then on my right is a progressive Jewish woman, super nice lady, sales lady. She's a progressive Jew from New York City. And on my left is this other awesome, awesome young lady who grew up in a house with one parent was Catholic, the other parent was Jewish. Her brother is a legitimate Buddhist monk, and her sister is a lesbian Jewish priest. I'm not making this up. And I'm in the middle right in the middle. And it's this, and it's talking, and it's this, and it's talking, and it's this, and it's talking, and we're telling stories, and like, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden, this progressive uh, Jewish person on my right, again, super, super sweet ladies, she says to me, what do you do for a living? (laughs) And I said, nothing. I'm just kidding. (laughs) What do you do for a living? I said, I'm a Christian pastor. And she said, well, what, what do you mean? What kind? She said, I don't know anything about Christianity. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm an evangelical Christian pastor, which means that we believe that from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, that that's the word of God, and we worship Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Oh, she said, the only Christian pastor that I know is a woman friend of mine, and we get drunk together, and we talk about our feelings. Okay. Okay, awesome. So now that they know that I'm an evangelical Christian pastor who teaches the Bible, what do you think their next question is? What do you think about same-sex marriage? What do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about abortion? And in those moments, there's that, there's that, that balance in your head where you just say, how do I navigate this situation? And I want you to know I navigated it with two lenses. The first lens was this, I must be true to the word of God. I must, God's listening, I must be true to the word of God and the sanctity of all those things that we talked about. But listen to me carefully. But secondarily, I had the lens of love for the two people that were sitting next to me that were made in the image of God. And I want them to know Jesus Christ. So I shared the truth uncompromisingly, unwaveringly, clearly, and they both thanked me for it later because I showed respect. Did they agree with it? Nope, not at all but we've got to walk the balance being prepared to disrupt. 
Thankfully, in that case, it didn't disrupt. It was interesting, but there's times that it disrupts, and we've got to be prepared for it. Family, friends, work, community, sometimes even in church, we've got to be prepared that if we surrender fully to the gospel, there may not be people that go with us. Secondly, what do we recognize here? We're going to prepare for the disruption, and my favorite part here is this. We're going to wait for God to redeem the disruption. Wait for God to redeem the disruption. God uses disruptions. Disruptions are a good thing. Disruptions are the way that many of you came to Christ. The death of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, right? The, the, the collapse of your life due to an addiction that, that was racking your life. The disruption brought you to Jesus, we see this in, in, in Acts chapter 19 when, when these uh, seven itinerant preachers had this insane moment and the believers repented. The name of Jesus was extolled. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I want to suggest to you that God uses the disruptions every time. He uses them. He redeems them. And only when Jesus' followers stay faithful to Christ and live out the gospel will God redeem even the hardest of hearts. And when I said that phrase, hardest of hearts, each of you have somebody on your mind, don't you? I do. A person that I'm fighting in prayer to continue to believe this with all my heart. That God can get even the hardest of heart through disruptions. But listen, too many Christians think the response to disruption is stay hidden, stay quiet, live sheltered, pull back from the world, and wait it out until eternity to come to the chosen circles and stay away from the world. But Jesus didn't live that way, did he? Jesus went into the world with the gospel. He ate with sinners. He supped with the sinners. He was with the community with the gospel. Because that disruption redeemed people's lives. We as followers of Jesus have to recognize that the gospel disrupts and it does not mean that that disruption is not from God. So many times, God says, I'm gonna use that disruption. Pray, seek me, look for me, stay faithful. I will use the disruptions in your life to demonstrate the real gospel. In fact, you know what we hear, we hear all over the, the Middle East world now? is that um, radical Islam is actually the greatest catapult to Christianity. Did you know that? Truly. Those on the ground that are living there say that the greatest catapult to the underground church across the Muslim world is actually radical Islam. You say, how could that possibly be? Because they don't want any part of that. They're disrupted by it. And that disruption has caused them to ask questions. God uses disruption. Speaking of the Middle East... There's a gal named Nori. Nori's a 27-year-old girl in Mafrak, Jordan. And she lives with her parents, Nazarene and Omar Khan. Omar is a Muslim sheik. He's taught the imams. He teaches Islam. He's high level. But what we learn from Nori's story, she tells us, is that, that from a very early age, from the age of four, she began to be tormented by what the Muslims called the jinns. The jinns are demons, church. From the age of four, from abuse from her father, she had these jinns enter her life where they would put all kinds of dark, horrible things in her mind and she'd have voices in her head constantly to the point that one night, like many other nights before at age 27, she's hurling and screaming guttural insults and curses at her mom and dad. You wish you were dead, you're the worst parents ever and throwing dishes across the house as she screams expletives at her parents. Her parents hold each other, cowing back in fear, calling on Allah to help them 
against a force that they clearly could not control. This happened many times in her life. They tormented her. She struggled. She hated her life. So the next day, she went to her job because Nori was a nurse in the cancer ward. And yet another string of her patients had died. So another one of her patients had died the very next day. And she just thinks, this has got to be me. It's got to be because of the gins. I'm bringing a curse on this hospital. And so she's sitting in the break room after one more patient had passed. And Dr. Aziz, the cancer doctor, comes in and looks at her, just staring off in the distance, thousand-mile stare, and says, Nori, are you depressed? It's like, I don't, I'm not trying to be mean or hurtful, but your face looks like a stone. She says, well, doctor, I lost another patient. And the doctor says, yes, but Nori, we're in the cancer ward. That happens here. She said, yeah, but you know they've happened on my hand more than anybody else's under my watch. And, you know, he says, listen, I, you're, you're my best nurse. You bring light to the place. I, I like you. You got to hang tough. And so almost surprising herself, she begins to share with him that I've got these voices in my head that I think are making things worse. We have the gins in my life. He listens for a moment, surveying Nori a little bit, and he puts his hand on his mouth like this, and he leans into Nori, and he says, Nori, I think you need to go to church. Nori steps back and says, excuse me? I'm a Muslim. My dad's a sheik. You're a practicing Muslim. They're infidels. Their, worth, their religion is worthless. Why would I do that? And the doctor says, well, let me ask you a question, Nori. Have you ever heard of an imam who could save a person from the voices in their head and from jinns? And he said, because I have it. But I've heard it from the Christians. You need to go to them. So some time elapsed, and she watches this little program on TV where she was flipping through the channels, and she hears a guy talking about the powerful, strong Jesus. So she decides, I'm going to do it. So she gets up early one day, and she's walking out the door until her mom, Nazarene, says, where are you going this early? She said, I have some errands to run. So she goes to a church. She knocks on the bars. And the priest comes up and looks at her and keeps an arm's distance, and she tells her, she tells this priest, I have these voices. Can you help me? And he said, you know what? It's just too dangerous. The fundamentalists are probably listening to us. I can't help you. Turns right back around and leaves. She's angry. She's discouraged. She notices another one, another church around the block, so she walks over there. Same thing. Knocks on the door. Priest comes out, says, they're probably watching us. It's too dangerous. I've got a, dangerous. I've got a very busy day. I can't be with you right now. Bye. So at the end of her rope, she doesn't know another Christian in her life, never met one. And at this point, she's so desperate at the end of her rope, she's pacing on the road and she's walking circles, talking to herself, saying, their Jesus is supposed to be so strong, but they're so afraid to even try to help me. And as she's talking, a couple named Sarah and Daniel walk up to her. And Sarah says, excuse me, miss, we perceive that you're a Muslim woman and you're in the Christian district. Are you lost? That's a valid question. And she's a little embarrassed that she's talking to herself and she just says, what do I have to lose? She said, I've tried to talk to two, to two uh, uh, churches about these voices in my head, but nobody will talk to me. Do you happen to know a pastor? And she puts her hand on her shoulder and she says, well, I sure do. My husband right here is one. And they go around the corner to the little Baptist church in Mafrock, Jordan. And they open their Bibles. And the way Nori tells the story, they open their Bibles and they get on their knees and they begin to pray and pray like she'd never heard before, calling on a God they have a relationship with, calling on God. And her eyes are wide open. And she's thinking, I've never done this. And she says to them, teach me how to pray like this. And after three and a half hours of praying, she gives her life to Jesus Christ and she's set free from all the voices in her head. God does this miraculous work, right? Incredible, incredible work. Yeah, yeah, praise God. Praise God. And so now she's a follower of Jesus. 
what am I going to do? Do I go back to work or do I go home and I talk to my Muslim sheik father and my Muslim mother? She says, I'm going to go face the music. So she decides to go home and she's thinking, how am I going to tell them I follow Jesus now? I mean, how do I figure this out? And she comes, she rounds the corner to her apartment and she looks and she sees sirens and she begins to run and she sees her aunt there with a phone on her ear. She says, what happened? And she said, Nori, we've been looking for you all day. Where have you been? Your father died today. And at 49, her father dies. And she rushes inside and her mom, Nazarene, is sitting on the ground in the living room, head in her hand saying, Nori, I don't know what happened. He said he didn't feel well, so he went to bed and while I cooked, he died. And she's going, the day that I meet Jesus and are set free from the gins, my dad dies. What does this mean? So some time goes by and they do the, the, the uh, funeral and she wants to share her story, but she feels like the Lord is saying to her, just wait, Nori, just wait before you tell your mom, just wait. Well, in the process, Nori decides, I have to tell someone about Jesus. So she starts a Facebook page called Huda Has Hope. And her first post said, I have found the truth and it's changed my life. Join me tomorrow and you can know the, the hope. I don't know everything, but I want to share the truth and the hope with you. And the next day, she had a, a dozen followed by hundreds, followed by over a thousand. And every night she would share her faith in Jesus. Every lunch she's in Bible study. She read the entire Bible in the first month. Think about that one. And she knows she needs to tell her mom in this process. So one night she decides to tell her mom at dinner. Mom, I'm a follower of Jesus. Because her mom said, how are you so joyful? What's going on in your life? She says, mom, I follow Jesus now. And to Nori's complete shock, Nazarene stands up. She punches her daughter square in the face, knocks her to the ground. Food goes flying, spits in her face and says, how dare you come to Christ? You are mocking your father's life. And the whole insults begin to flow. And she stands up and she smiles at her mom and she walks down the hall. She opens up her computer and she continues to share the gospel through Facebook, knowing that this is something that God's calling her to make a difference. Thousands become overwhelming. So then she's on the online at night and she's talking about her faith until one, two, three o'clock in the morning until one night, one morning really, at three in the morning when she's exhausted from a particularly long night of counsel online. She gets a new friend request from Nazarene Khan. She falls out of the chair. She hits the ground, begins weeping, saying, could this be my mother? She begins to ask sincere questions. Is joy really possible? Does Jesus really change lives? Is the Bible really trustworthy? And she begins to walk through this story until six weeks later, Nori gets to lead her mom to Jesus through Facebook Messenger and she becomes a follower of Christ. Amen. She still doesn't know Nori is Huda. So a few weeks pass, waiting for an open door of the Holy Spirit. She says to her mom, Mom, I'm who to has hope. And she grabs her and she just throws her around. And then two weeks later, Nori gets baptized with her mom in the front row. And she said, Nori, I want to get baptized next time. And she said, how about now? And then they swapped and she got baptized. I want to say to you this morning, God redeems disruptions. Don't be afraid of the gospel disruption in your life. God redeems disruptions. He uses it mightily. If Nori wasn't willing to have courage in her faith and let the disruption happen because she loved Christ, if she would have shrunk back in fear, her mom may not have come to Christ. What disruption is happening in your life that God might be involved in? Maybe you've been afraid this morning to, to live out loud for Jesus. What are you waiting for? Let God redeem a disruption for his glory 
for his honor. Let's pray. God, thanks so much that your gospel message is a message worth living for and it's a message worth disrupting for. So God, I pray that we as a church, because all the people that call you Lord and Savior make up the church, I pray that we as a church, God, would stand firm, stand boldly in your gospel with a smile on our faith, passion on our hearts. Father, I pray that we would live the life of a Jesus follower that brings glory to you and that you would redeem these disruptions for your glory and so that our neighbors, the brothers and sisters that we have that are walking in life would then become brothers and sisters in faith because of our witness to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim. If you're here today and you haven't given your life to Christ, today could be that day for you. Today could be the day when everything changes. Eternity, sins are forgiven, heaven becomes yours. And if you'd like to talk with someone about it before you leave, stop at the Welcome Center and we'll make sure and connect you with one of our pastors today. Those of you who are here and believers, I want to remind you that the gospel is revolutionary. The gospel runs counter to the culture. The gospel is disruptive. And I know that some of us, just by our natures, we don't like disruption We don't like that, but I want to remind you that sin is also disruptive. And as long as we live on this planet, it's going to be disruptive. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It can be the hard way of the consequence of sin, or it can be the powerful, redemptive, life-changing disruption of Jesus Christ as he reaches in and he changes lives. It's a disruption that changes an addict's life and puts him on the road to sobriety. It's a disruption that changes a marriage that's going to divorce and brings it back to what God wants it to be. It's some disruption that causes the prodigal to return home again, and God redeems those disruptions. So I wanna encourage you to even look for those in your life who are going through this moment Imagine that God could use a Muslim doctor to say to a Muslim woman, you need to go to a Christian church. God's at work in the world. And the scripture says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. And this is our work at Emmanuel. This is the work of Grace Point. This is why we partner together and why we start churches and why we do this work that we can reach out together. I'm so glad that you were here today. I have just one other quick announcement. You know that many times when there's disaster in the world, uh, we take it on ourselves to join in helping disaster relief, particularly in proclaiming the name of Christ. And today only, if you give to the World Mission Offering today, that money will go to the disaster relief in Maui. Uh, what they've suffered there is the worst, uh, the worst number of deaths in any forest fire in the United States history. And a lot of mistakes that happen there, but we could talk about the mistakes or we can minister to the people. And the money that you give through Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, nothing's kept for administration. Uh, n- nothing is kept for promotion or commercials or ads. All of it goes directly to disaster relief, and it goes in the name of Christ. So if you'd like to give to that today, you can do that in the offering box, or you can do that online with the online giving as well. 
Well, uh, in uh, just a few moments after this last song, I'm going to ask Jim and Brandy if they'd stand right here at the front, to my left, to your right. And many of you know them. You remember them from their time with us. I want you to come by and greet them. Let them know you're praying for them. If you haven't met them, come by and meet them and make them a part of your prayer list because now you know we have a partner here in Billings that preaches the gospel. Will you stand with us? deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of sin. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at myemmanuel.net.